Psychedelic science is exploding and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard. This is Mind Manifest. Thank you so much for joining me, uh, William. I, um, I really just wanted to reach out to you because I have to be honest, I didn't, I'm embarrassed to say, I didn't know who you were until about a fortnight ago. And how I came across you is, I think, a fairly interesting story. And I was working in, I'm a therapist and I was in my waiting room. I actually sat down in my waiting room for, you know, do that every now and again, just to get a sort of patient's eye view. And I saw your book on the the poetry pharmacy, the first one, sat on the mantelpiece and I took it down to read it. But there was something so, before we hear about the genesis of it, there was something so, of course, about it. There was something so antecedent about it. You know, I saw the words and I intuitively knew what it was and what it was for. And it has been very well leafed in our waiting room. So I read through it and then your email was at the back of it. And I emailed you and you graciously said, yes, I'd love, love to talk. So I was just from, and then when I've obviously since done my research and I was very impressed by your, your bio and and your whole sort of story as, uh, as an editor and, and really an enthusiast and advocate for, for poetry, taking it out of poetry corner. But I'd love to get a potted history of, really your love for poetry and then moving more into, you know, the genesis of, of the poetry pharmacy itself, just to lay the ground for, for, you know, how I came to him to know of your, your work. Of course, of course. Yes, that would, that would be fine. Um, uh, my genesis, the, the genesis of it, I suppose, um, it's a kind of lifetime's work in a way. Um, um, but, but only in hindsight, <laughs> so often one sees these things, but, uh, it all began for me what, really when I was a, a small boy. I, I, the strange habit that the British have, I, I was sent to a boarding school when I was eight years old. And um, in those days, a boarding school, well, was a very different experience perhaps to now, but um, it was a pretty cold, brutal sort of place. And um, it's a long way away from home. And in order to get there, it, it took a day. And... Um, Therefore, it really felt a long way away from home. But also, it was a place where no one loved me. And I'd only been used to, you know, warmth and love from my, particularly from my mother. And uh, it just, in retrospect, uh, was an enormous rupture, fissure in my psyche. And I don't think I've ever really recovered from it um, on a fundamental level. And I've talked to lots of other men of that generation who were sent away to school. And, uh, you know, uh, men of that era weren't very good at talking about these things. But, of course, the world has changed. And um, I began to notice a sort of a flicker of fear and anguish in their eyes, too, about what they went through. Mm. So poetry... Uh, Sorry. Yeah, no, I I think... It's we can. I'd really love to dig down into that because the disproportionately enormous cultural output of men of that particular ilk. Once you start to see, you know, this this story which of yours, which is, and I'm, I don't want to sort of editorialize it and gloss over it. It's, I'm, I'm very sorry that that happened to you. It is unfortunately quite a modal experience for for many men of that generation. 
But once you start to understand that from an from an, an attachment theory, you start to see that maybe it wasn't possible for them to speak about it, you know, in the dorm with each other, but the cultural output in literature and art and all of these areas and spheres where they then moved into as men is absolutely, you know, enormous and very, very impactful. So it's, it's sort of like hiding in plain sight in many ways, once you know how to look for it. That's very interesting. Um, but I also think that um, while, you know, and, and, I, and I can see that, that anguish uh, often uh, breeds creativity. And perhaps if your soul isn't stirred, then you, you don't necessarily uh, have a creative output. But it also meant that an awful lot of my generation were traumatized, stunted, whatever would be the right word for it. And, it, you know, I can see now in my 60s how so many of them have acted out as a result in one way or another. Uh, uh, quite a few people of my generation to drug addiction and uh, to alcohol. And um, I think that that was related to the trauma of uh, being separated from their family and what happened to them wherever they went. Plus, uh, it was an unguarded, uh, unprotected environment. And in many cases, um, children of that era were put under the guard of men who abused them or brutalized them. Men who were quite, to become a, a prep school master in that era um, was usually a, a, a refuge for a, you know, quite twisted individuals or damaged individuals themselves. And uh, as I said, there was very little safeguarding. And uh, I don't know whether you, you, you've come across it so much in Australia, but in England and Britain now, the story's coming out about how many people um, suffered, uh, you know, in, in that era uh, it, under, uh, un, uh, under the supposed protection of these people. And, of course, it made me think, too, why did parents do this? And... I talked to my mother about this, and it was some. I think she 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 just felt that there were that, that sending you away w into a cohort of people who would become your friends, hopefully for the rest of your life, was a sort of way of social advancement or a way of uh, educating you better. And um, but but she almost felt like there was no choice. There was some sort of uh, social. Um, um, uh, pressure for her to do so, and uh, I think you know I, I, I've always been very sad about it. Yeah, well, I I wonder, an, an image comes to my mind of just how, um, just how much momentum there was, and how uh, you know ostensibly inescapable it would have been for mums of that generation. Because there's an episode of The Crown, I'm thinking of, where even you know the Queen of the Commonwealth doesn't actually escape the momentum of you know sending her her boys away to Spartan schools and you know the you know these granite uh, these granite tombs you know on the other side of the of the land, um, and I sometimes wonder whilst there might be a sort of conscious post hoc rationalisation about whatever the you know, the, the whatever was flavor of the month from a psychological perspective, I sometimes wonder, was there an, almost like an intergenerational austerity at play whereby there was this front loading of uh, the wrong type of stoicism, the type of stoicism that would make Marcus Aurelius twist in his tomb, 
because of what the, the inverted quotes privilege, and I know that's a very loaded term, that was likely to come after. So I sort of feel like there was this generation of men who, yes, then, fair enough, they might have advanced in the city or did one thing or another, but they just sort of, because I've worked with men like this, so I, I can fully attest to what you're talking about, is just how shell-shocked they are for, you know, half a century afterwards and how, depending on their particular person, personal persuasion, it will either come out through art or a messy divorce or psychosomatic symptoms, you know, but often it doesn't come out in a type of conscious insight um, for much for, for a very long time until most of the most of the adult life is is done. And I I feel like the poetry that was produced, yes, there was a stirring of the soul. But when you mention about the the the, the you know that that rupture, that major rupture. Since reading a lot of your stuff and, and, and these really beautifully curated books that you've written, I see the poems as, as many repairs in many ways. And I think that's a cert- certainly an intersection about the, you know, where the psychedelic work is going because um, the, the c- capacity of a poem to help young people create a type of solidarity across time, the sp- time and generations and cultures is very much echoed by the experience which is now being reported with, with quite you know high reliability for people who have taken high dose psychedelics this solidarity that they're not you know they're not the only person who has suffered and that doesn't diminish their suffering it just creates a type of visceral solidarity which the best poems often often give us so with all that in mind I'm curious to know what poems with hindsight, William, were important to you, you know, not retrospectively, but sort of more at that time when the when this rupture was occurring? It wasn't so much what poems, but um, poetry itself, in the sense that um, uh, at my little boarding school, um, the one thing that they felt I was good at or that I was praised for was reading aloud. And... Um, I then went and won the Hampshire Under 11 Latin Reading Competition. And to give you an idea of my age, I won a 10 shilling book token. And uh, it was uh, 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 a Latin poem about Icarus and Daedalus. And um, so uh, I sort of held that to me. Somehow or other, you know, um, uh, it was the only approval, reward, whatever it would be that. Uh, I'd, I could get in, in in quite a difficult environment. And I then went to another boarding school when I was 12, and uh, I discovered an English teacher, or an English teacher discovered me. And there, reading poetry lab was a big deal. And there was a special declamation prize. And um, it, the whole, the, the provost and the headmaster and all of these people would appear in robes for a special evening, and the finalists for this prize would be in 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 the sort of grand ancient um, college hall and so forth. And uh, it was a big deal, and I won it. And uh, an English master um, there thereafter coached me um, to compete in declamation prizes. And he was a rather brilliant man. He is a rather brilliant man, and he's in his eighties now. And he uh, taught me as well as taught me to read and um, read aloud, but he also taught me English for A-level and demystified the wasteland in the most extraordinary way. 
And I do feel that uh, one of the initiatives I, I, I started many years ago was called the Big Arts Week. And it was really to connect artists to their local school. Because, um, as, as one person put it, you know, I've always heard the children in the playground from my studio, but I've never been inside. And, but, but deep down, I've realized that almost every creative adult I've ever met, somebody passed the baton to them. It may have been a parent uh, or a friend of a parent or an English teacher, an art teacher at school or whatever. But on the whole, if the baton isn't passed to you, 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 you won't have the confidence to engage with it or, or, or to try and be creative yourself. So this man was very, very central to my life. And many, many years later, I met a well-known actor and uh, I was talking about poetry to him and he said, who inspired you? And I, and I explained that this master did. And he, he suddenly said, was it Michael Meredith? And I said, yes, it was. How did you know? And he said, he's the reason I'm an actor. So it made me, uh, it was really intriguing, actually, because only a few months ago, I went back to see, to find him, to say thank you, because I just realized so many people um, through the years just must have had that baton passed to, to them by him. And uh, that's a tremendous and important legacy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, I'd say you two were, were two of, of many. So Thank you very much, Michael, for passing that. Is he still with us? Did you get back to yes, say hello to him? Oh, very much. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, um, this will be a little digital thank you. Thank you very much, oh. Michael. Those those people are so foundationally important, aren't they? Those timely mentors for 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 young young men. Um, how now? Whenever you you've talked. Since I, I feel that you should put the Hampshire Under Eleven Prize on your LinkedIn profile, I think that's perfectly reasonable. <laughs> the things which we're genuinely most proud of often don't don't yeah. fit into the sort of narrative of what's supposed to go on our bio. Yeah. But um, I might try and include that in your bio when we record it after the show. But this this thing you've spoken about uh, at, at other points, William, the importance of embodying a poem and saying it aloud, and how it sort of revivifies it i'd love for you to speak to that why is it important for people to learn poems because i think that is one of the the sort of things which puts them off this notion of you know a schoolmaster making us wrote learn something which we don't understand so why is it important and do you recommend for people to embody the poems and, and how should they go about doing it well i, I i'm going to answer that in a roundabout way uh, for National Poetry Day one year, we worked with the university and they were doing <clears throat> interviews of people uh, in their 60s, 70s and 80s um, to get a sense of what made up their, their personal identity, their sense of self. And what was really interesting was how many of them mentioned the poems they learnt off by heart as, as children at school. So um, I just say that as a precursor, that, that plainly, learning poetry off by heart really means something to people. And, and particularly if you learn them when you're young, they stay in your head. The reading aloud is important because I don't believe poetry should be read like um, journalism or, you know, the newspaper or, or, or a novel or whatever. That There's a concision in poetry and there's a lyricism and musicality in it. And what brings it to life is the act of reading it aloud. Uh, and when I say that, I don't mean necessarily reading aloud, because you might be on the bus, but reading aloud in your head, so that when you read a poem, you hear it, if that makes sense. 
and you will get something very, very different from, from it. I also encourage people to read the same poem uh, over a few days. Um, you know, if you have it by your bed, you might read the same poem for three or four nights, but you'll, each time you do it, you'll get a different something from it. Partly because great art is, uh, I believe, layered, and, uh, you, you, you know, in, in, in a way, what makes it so interesting it, is that has the power to do that. But also I feel that poetry is um, a kind of mirroring effect. It, it, it all depends on your own mood, what you get from it. And you'll be surprised, therefore, how, because one's mood changes so quickly and so often, how, how you'll draw sustenance from it in a different way. And this, this notion, when I, whenever we talk about, you know, the, the, the frequency of, and the, the likelihood that, that you pick up somebody on the street and say, you know, tell me a poem that you know off by heart, I would imagine that there would be a, an enormous drop off as you move down the demographics. So had they asked the same questions of, you know, today's uh, younger people in, in certain ways, they might not know it in that regard. So it, it got me thinking, okay. Poems must be lived. They are dynamic things. They 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 do best possibly in, in the transpersonal space, and so I think phenomena like that can't die. They just sort of sublimate. They transmute into somewhere else. So it got me thinking: Where are people learning poetry aloud and sort of, you know, living within it again? And it got me thinking that. If you wanted to find a bunch of young men who are going to wrote, learn and then, you know, live out stanzas, it's not in Poetry Corner. It would be hip hop and sort of urban music or like as you've one of the poems in, in the Poetry Pharmacy is Oscar Hammerstein's lines, you know, you'll never walk alone, which are belted out at every home game at Anfield. So poetry sales are upticking. But I, that's just my sense for where it's living in this embodied way, because I don't think it's gone away. I just don't really have a good sense, William, of, you know, in what quarters poetry is is being memorized, read aloud, exchanged between people, because I, I don't think it looks the same as it did for, for previous generations. Do you, could you speak to that? Yes, it, well, it, it definitely doesn't. But our aptitude and enthusiasm for it has, has meant absolutely, you're right, that the poetry of rap, which I suppose sort of began very late 70s, early 80s. Um, now, every, not every child, but, but you know, it's, so many young people can recite the lyrics to those sorts of songs. And uh, I think what's really important is to see poetry as very broad church. You know, I think poetry is in every liturgy. And uh, it's in a way, been subsumed into popular music culture from you know from the sort of nineteen sixties onwards. A number of the great musicians from that era um, see themselves as poets as well. You know, Van Morrison, Bob Dylan, um, Leonard Cohen, um, and uh, I think also in the sixties onwards, poets started to get um, caught up within other art forms. So a number of them to make a living became advertising copywriters. And I often am listening to commercial radio and I hear a jingle, <laughs> if you call it, if you know what I mean. And I actually think that's really poetic. And uh, so I, I feel that it's, it's a lot to do with our kind of narrow definition of poetry, that it, that it is this 
fusty dusty back of a bookshop elite volume slim thing that's not for me but at the same time i'm walking down the street um you know um mouthing the words to the latest rap song uh, and and you know uh, and 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 similarly but you know in um in the in in um until not long ago millions of people were buying greetings cards in britain i think britain were the con- consumers of more greetings cards per head of population than anywhere in the world and inside those greetings cards you know you may, you may not feel that it's a prize winning poem but but it's still poetry it's still um often in intriguing thoughtful stuff so uh, i i believe that poetry is everywhere it's just the narrow schoolish definition that somehow uh, put people off made people frightened of it made people made it seem inaccessible it's interesting you say about that sort of schoolish definition i feel that we sort of individual we have to take a sort of personal responsibility for how we internalize that model because as you were talking about you know the the, the cards and, and the sort of little shtick within the greetings cards that is a fairly common experience for people after psychedelics and i've had former guests talk about this all those michael paul and shane mouse talked about this all those little ditties that would make you groan as you walk through the aisles of you know coles or what, what you know the sort of tesco oh god but then in the seems to be William, this is a very interesting finding is that for several months after people have had uh, a really profound psychedelic experience they are so much more open to in a non-cynical way you know taking those things on board anew like with a beginner's mind so <laughs> people will say things like yes home is where the heart is you know and with all yep. sincerity they mean these things yes and it's very it, it sort of shows us back how modal this type of jaded cynicism to these aphorisms have become. Um, I feel like poetry from from a long period of time ago that we don't have any cultural reference points for in our day-to-day lives can often do a similar similar job. And there's that beautiful poem uh, that you've listed for loneliness. Uh, the, I think it's by Hafez, am I pronouncing yeah. that correctly? The Sufi right. mystic. Right. I, if you'd be open to it, I'd love to hear you just tell a little bit about that because that to me is the experience of fe- hearing something that you sort of know implicitly for the first time and it, it cannot be told to lonely people enough in my experience. Funnily enough, this has been the most powerful prescription of the lot. And there it is in one or two lines, written mostly, I'd say, in 700 years ago by Hafez. But one needs to be generous to the translator, Daniel Ladinsky, because um, it, uh, I think uh, purists of Hafez would say it's a fusion of the two, but I don't mind. It doesn't really matter. Uh, in the modern world, um, our biggest problem is loneliness uh, in in this country anyway, and I imagine um, in lots of places. And it appears to be, to me, because, uh, or exacerbated because of digital technology. Uh, The phone has become so much, um, so influential in our lives, but people are, I think, unaware, or maybe they're not really looking at the impact it's having on their well-being and their psyche. I, I just got an email this morning, actually, from a 16-year-old girl 
sending me paragraphs about this and how she'd switched her phone off and um, stopped using it to, for her own mental health. But all her peers around her were were teasing her and um, and th- you know thinking she'd gone mad. They keep saying to her, "What do you do then? Stare at the wall?" And um, I thought that was a re- really interesting. And um, the other day I was in Belfast actually, and uh, uh, I was in a little hotel, um, and there was a young rugby team um, staying there, and. Uh, it was about eight o'clock in the morning um, and we were sitting in reception and they were obviously about to get on a, a coach to go somewhere and so on. And there they were, all all sort of 15 of them, sitting, looking at their phones in reception, absolutely silent. And I just thought, good heavens, w- w- when I was 17, if there, if there were 15 of us <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in the room, it wouldn't be quiet. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's not yeah. what would be going on, you know. Uh, <laughs> it, it's a very strange... It's almost like something out of science fiction when you think about it. Anyway, but 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 what it also does is that it, it through social media it forces people to put a kind of avatar of themselves uh, up, an avatar of falseness. Look at me, I'm this, I'm that, I'm holidaying, I've got friends, I go to parties, whatever it may be. Nobody's putting up how they feel. I'm miserable. I'm lonely. I need a hug. They don't dare do that, and so. To sustain the schizophrenia of putting of living and putting an avatar of yourself up on social media is really challenging, and that's if you're an adult. Imagine what it's like if you're an adolescent. Absolutely, I, I feel blessed in many ways, William, to be really. You know, I'm in my late late thirties. I say late thirties. I'm almost. <laughs> I'm a few sleeps away from forty, but I'll say late thirties for now. Um, to feel feel like one of the last generations whereby my prefrontal cortex, you know, the bit that made executive decisions and, and was really tracking my social status and whatnot was pretty much baked by the time um, social media became the, the sort of mainstream way that you organized things and, and you know, sh- showed what you were up to. And I just feel that there has been this test tube generation, the digital natives, and we're coming out the other side. Um, and I would imagine that they, those people who traditionally might not have touched poetry until in previous generations, they maybe hit those more midlife crisis are probably reaching for the digital version of poetry corner much sooner than in, in the past. That's my sense of it, William, but as a, as an editor, as it younger is the biggest growth areas in the sort of digital natives, the late teens, the, the early twenties, all the way through, are those the people who are reaching for it in social media? They, well, they probably outnumber uh, the elder ones, but but I, I think it's happening everywhere. And um, during COVID, um, poetry sort of took off again. And um, I suspect that in part it was that we no longer had the ability to commune. And um, uh, in particular, uh, although we're becoming increasingly secular, we didn't have the opportunity to commune and worship together. And we need to worship, although, again, I've got a very broad definition of what worship and prayer is, prayerfulness is all about. And I felt suddenly that the canon of poetry was becoming the secular liturgy. And uh, people were sharing through social media all kinds of poetry to help people um, 
in their spiritual journey or fill the spiritual va- vacuum void lacuna that, that, that COVID was creating. And uh, since then and during then, but since then, poetry book sales have, have shot up. And uh, I, I suspect that um, it's because people can express through poetry a um, they find the, 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 a complicity with it uh, because the poetry is expressed rather more elegantly. They can express their feelings themselves and then they can share these uh, wonderful thoughts with others uh, as a way of holding their hand across the airwaves. The, the notion of a secular liturgy is something which I think is very interesting. And again, another another sort of point of correlation, I really feel, between um, poetry and, and psychedelics, really any experience which is seems to to when when entered into with a spirit of of openness prompts us to feel the sense of the numinous or you know really places us <laughs> back in some the broadest possible context Th- that notion of the secular liturgy is something which uh i think is is just only going to increase but i i wonder how will the canon survive so to speak because i can imagine in, in the past there was you know there really wasn't much competition for what constituted um you know the canon yes there might have been new poets that came online but the rate of change and, and the, the number of faces and voices was 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 much 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 smaller and you've outlined this before william about how that there were you know the sort of bottlenecks of of a handful of of fairly similarly tasteful men in London who were, you know, edited poetry books. That has completely changed. Um, but I, I, yeah, thank God. I suppose I, I, I agree. My, my concern, however, is that I like the notion that we can almost update the canon, differentiate the canon, you know, add to the canon, compound the canon, do all of these things. But what I am concerned that might happen is that there will be a repudiation, not of the canon, or a rejection of certain tenets of the canon, but a sort of repudiation of the notion of a canon at all. And I think that's very dangerous because, you know, to sort of that there, I, I'm concerned sometimes that there's a sort of cultural year zero at play where people say out with the old and with the new, you know, here we go. Let's not listen. So whilst I, I feel very much that it is, it is brilliant and beautiful and we can talk about modern poets, you know, who is really lighting you up now. I think it's very important that we don't, just consign, you know, every fusty old, supposedly fusty old white man to the to the dustbin because I think that would be a, a grave, a grave cultural mistake. So. And maybe there'll be a little bit of an overreaction, but no one will disappear. That you know, that, um, sometimes um, in order to include the new and the diverse, um, you know, you have to exclude uh, some of the fusty old dead white men to just to find the space in the book or whatever, as, as, as recently happened in this country on the O-level set text. And everyone was up in arms that Larkin didn't make the top 50 or whatever. But fashions change. And um, uh, I, I, I think, funnily enough, in, in, in all that I've done in poetry, one of the most um, important things to me, or, or one of the things I'm most proud of, is that I make a book called Poems of the Decade, which is a kind of top of the pops of the last 10 years of what I think are are the most important poets and poems. And that's become, about 10 years ago, became the A-level, English A-level set text in this country. 
And as somebody who was an appalling student and spent most of my time defacing book covers, uh, I take an inordinate pride in the idea that children across the country are uh, uh, are defacing mine. (laughs) The unbroken lineage of of moustaches being drawn on the faces of... Exactly. exactly. (laughs) But I'm really proud of the fact that children are reading, learning, studying poetry written in the last 10 years. Because when I was at school, you know, I was probably the most, con- I was probably at least 50 years behind <laughs> the poetry, or maybe hundreds of years. So um, if you if you choose to then go further and um, and really study it, then um, why, why not go back to the ancients and everything? And, and equally, if you're doing English A-level, that should include uh, them as well. But I, 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 do, I did feel that there was a real, one of the reasons which put people off poetry was it just didn't seem relevant what they were studying. And um, so that, that's why Poems of the Decade, I, I feel, is quite an achievement. That's, that's brilliant to hear. It's, sort of, it's, it's a long enough period of time that you can get a, a broad sweep of what's happening, but also sort of short enough that people, it'll be in spitting distance culturally of the people who are... Um, you know, learning it. I, I remember feeling that. I think that happens a lot in music uh, as well. A friend of mine's a piano teacher and he would always preface kids starting, you know, their, their whole piano journey with saying, what songs do you like? Okay, there's plenty of musical theory and learning within that. Well, yeah, I need yeah. to get a critical mass of love yes. of this art and this modality. And then we can go back and, and you know, teach you all all the classics. But if you don't have that you know starter for 10 then um it's really a sort of it's just a non sequitur so i i yeah well done that's that's i'm sort of keen to hear now uh, my my nieces are going through that age so they might very well be starting to recite things that you cho- and if they deface things i shall send you a picture of their their art. <laughs> <laughs> but, but by the way oh by the way we've got to say going back to hafez and Daniel Ladinsky, there is a fusion between 700 years ago and today, and there is the antidote for loneliness, and it goes, I wish I could show you when you're lonely or in darkness the astonishing light of your own being. Mm. So simple. And that's the most powerful prescription of all, I think. People get out of the chair a foot taller uh, w- when I read that to them. And I've had extraordinary responses. And I think um, uh, the most powerful one to that was it, I, I received a, an email one day from a, a, a woman I, I had seen, I think at a mental health unit actually in Liverpool. And she said, you may not remember me, but, but you gave me these two lines to learn. And you said, put it on your mirror. Uh, because I, I, I think I'd said I wasn't very good at learning things. And I said, and read it every morning. And Last night I came home and my flat had been burgled and totally ransacked in the way that burglars do. And she said, the only thing that hadn't moved in the flat were the two lines of poetry that sat on my mirror. Thank you, she said. It got me through the night. Yeah, the the, the power of people knowing that someone who I will obviously never meet and from a completely different era has ostensibly the same experience that they do. You know, whenever I hear that poem, I imagine 
a lover telling it to another who is depressed, just almost shaking them by the shoulders and just holding space for them. And if, if a poem encapsulated the experience of therapeutic MDMA, I think it would be, I think that could put its hand up. I, I know that seems like a clunky comparison, William, but really the experience that people will have is of, it, it has this, that poem has a sort of a, a sense of urgency. It's like, you know, see yourself and it's often true love must be reciprocal. It has to be received. It can be given freely, but it must be, it must land. And so I feel, I would imagine that when you were prescribing that to people, it was to people who, and again, I, I could be on, on uh, barking up the wrong tree, but people who were sat in front of you who didn't seem to have any sort of insight into their own sense of self worth for whatever, whatever had happened to them through their lifespan, but almost a sense of you're a child of the universe. Here is who you are. You know, that's, that's who you are. And one day you will take that into your heart. That's the sense that I get from that poem across the, across the millennia, almost at this stage. Yes. 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 And I, and, uh, I, 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 I think I grew up feeling, I wonder whether it's different, but I, I felt that in my generation, we had more collective support in some sense about mm-hmm. our sense of worth, but maybe not. Maybe it's always been like this. I think the village, you know, the sort of built environment and so many different things did add up to, to there being more, more support, um, I, I think, yes, maybe there's the illusion that people have that being part of a digital community, therefore mm-hmm. a much larger community, has, has more resonance. Um, but it, it doesn't replace the, the smaller, intimate community that we grew up with. No, I, I feel like a quiet revolution of the parochial is something. Yes, you know, yes. So the core of Tolkien's work was, you know, the best place, the most unsophisticated and... and best place of all is the Shire and we all just have to return, you know, psychopathology is largely our, our sojourn out into Mordor. And then, you know, this poem is sort of saying, right, it's time to come home now. You'll be a foot taller and you'll know a few more things, but maybe you have to, maybe you have to see the the darkness of your own being first before you can fully appreciate the light, you know? So I think there is something to the contrast in life, which this poem orients people back towards that. Yes, but it's very hard to do it, isn't it? Because we know that Silicon Valley's algorithms are doing everything possible (laughs) for us to stay, remain fixated to a screen um, rather than talking to the person on the park bench sitting next to you who's also on their screen. (laughs) (laughs) It's bananas. It's bananas. So I'm curious because we didn't, we, we, we haven't really dug into what, you know, the nuts and bolts of the poetry pharmacy is. So I was wondering if you could tell the story of, 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 you know, the, the, the very first, I suppose, in session that you had at this, at the, at the, um, the, the festival. And then I'd be very curious to hear, like, this is a selfish question as a therapist, you know, how does a, a session generally go? Like, is it a case that you will voice voice the poem to them give them a you know almost like a prescription you know make it ritualistic have them read it i'm I'm very curious to know how it came to be and then how when you were actually this almost accidental therapist what your (laughs) what your average day looked like when you were actually prescribing these these poems yes um well it all began um 
uh, gosh, about 10 years ago when um, a woman, uh, a friend I worked with called Jenny Dyson was programming uh, a literary festival down in Cornwall, um, uh, a sort of cultural festival, literary and music. And she said, um, I'm going to ask you down to talk about a book. And it was a book I, I brought out called Winning Words uh, with Faber and Faber. And it was an anthology of inspiring uh, poems for everyday life. And it was meant to connect to the arrival of the Olympics uh, here in 2012. And um, she said, but, but, but you've always sent poems to me to help me in my time of need when my father died, when I got divorced and so forth. And I think you should do that down at the festival. Um, so bring photocopies of any poems you can think of that might help people. And I'm going to set you up in a tent and I'm going to call it the Poetry Pharmacy. And I've designed you a prescription pad. And she showed me the design and it made me laugh. And I said, okay, fine, I'll do it. And I thought in a way it was just a you know, a fun... Mm -hmm. Silent disco sort of a thing at the festival. Yeah, yeah. yeah, just a thing to do at a festival. And, what you know, I'd I'd do it for an hour hour or so. And she'd booked um, 20-minute slots and um, put a big blackboard outside the tent for people to fill in, you know, uh, and get their chance to come and talk to me. And I sat in my tent. And after about five hours, I really had a very full bladder and I needed a break. And I popped out and I looked at this blackboard and it had been extended to the next day and the day after, all three days of the festival, and there was hardly a spare spot. And so with a sense of sort of um, mixed feelings, really, because I was really stunned. People were coming in for 20 minutes and pouring their heart out to a total stranger. And uh, once I'd relieved myself, I also got a box of tissues because... Mm -hmm every other person was crying. And I, I, I sort of realized that Jenny had, had, had stumbled across the access point that I'd always wanted to find for poetry. Because until then, I'd been promoting poetry with National Poetry Day and the Forward Prizes for Poetry, which is sort of Booker Prizes for Poetry here, for, for decades. But I still didn't feel I'd got poetry out of Poetry Corner, really. Uh, and this was this was the moment. And, but I was also quite stunned at its impact on me because this was a festival. And once people had stopped coming to talk to me uh, in the evenings, there were all kinds of events and dancing and fun and frolics. And my friend said to me, come on, come and do this and come and do that. And I really didn't want to. I wanted to absorb what I'd, you know, encountered and, and uh, I needed to process what I'd dealt with. And, um, then, lo and behold, it turned out that one of the people who'd come to pull their heart out to me was a producer for BBC Radio 4. And the next weekend, I think, uh, they'd asked me to come and go on a kind of Saturday morning magazine programme uh, where they have all kinds of guests and, and so forth. And, uh, and they said, would I come and do a pharmacy on, you know, on the radio? So I came with my filing cabinet of photocopies uh, my portable filing cabinet, and sat there. And they started asking me the sort of questions about the genesis of the pharmacy and what had happened last week and so forth. And and then they said, would, would, would listeners like to email for a prescription? And 
I could see the producer sitting opposite me, so her eyes widen as the emails flooded in. And she said, I've never seen so many emails on our show. And so they asked me to come back again uh, a few months later for Christmas, on the basis that Christmas is quite a challenging time for lots of reasons. And um, could I come up with some poems for that? And I went and did a some more extended session on the program then. Then uh, after Christmas, just by chance, uh, the government, the UK government, asked me if I would conduct a review of the public library system. And I said yes, and it began an 18-month journey around the country of visiting public libraries. And I didn't want to be the government inspector, the man in a suit, as you might say. So I, I offered to conduct a poetry pharmacy in every library I visited. And unexpectedly, because you know I'm a family man and I had other responsibilities, uh, what I did in, on my tour was I'd leave on Sunday night from home and I'd go some, drive up, uh, 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 up somewhere in the country and I, and I would visit a library on a Monday lunchtime, a library on a Monday early evening, and then stay in a you know local B&B or whatever. And then the next day I'd do the same. So I would be conducting four pharmacies on uh, through Monday and Tuesday. And that was, you know, sometimes listening to as much as 70 people in two days pour their heart out. And I was unprepared for this. And I certainly wasn't supervised. And um, uh, over that 18-month period, I, I, I listened to over a 1,000 people's problems. And uh, that was where I began to learn an awful lot. First of all, that... Um, so many of us suffer from exactly the same problems, whatever our cultural or economic or social background. And, you, you know, loneliness pervades wherever, you know, wh- wherever you are, um, for instance. And uh, when I came back to London at the end of all of this, uh, people started asking me to come and conduct poetry pharmacies in all sorts of places for all sorts of reasons. And one day I was um, opening... Uh, a, a kind of co-working site and uh, they asked me to do a, a pharmacy with the people who'd moved in there or were working there and the most extraordinary thing happened I, 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 I was waiting for someone to turn up for their slot and a security guard uh, in the building came over to me and said your 3.30's cancelled and I said that's fine that gives me a little bit of a break he said no he said I wondered if I could come and sit down and I said of course so he sat down and he said to me, I need to talk. And I said, well, what's on your mind? And he said, uh, I'm Muslim and I'm gay. I, I came out 10 years ago and I'm, I still haven't had a relationship. But because I'm Muslim and gay, I, I sort of feel I can't be both. And I said to him, actually, I went back to Hafez all those years ago. You know, there's a Sufi mystic who plainly doesn't think there is a contradiction in being Muslim and gay, because he said, it happens all the time in heaven. And one day it'll happen again on earth that men and women who are married, and men and men who are lovers, and women and women who give each other light, will get down on bended knee with tears in their eyes and say to their loved one, how can I be more loving to you? How can I be more kind? And there was this pause and then he got up and I got up and he gave me the most enormous bear hug with tears flooding down 
And I gave him my email address. And a few months later, he wrote to me and said, I'm dating, thank you. And I think that was one of the most moving and uh, uh, sort of affirming moment I've had in the poetry pharmacy of just how I, I was able to be a kind of cipher through my knowledge of, of poetry, um, of, of, of reassuring words that can give you a sense of complicity with how you are and, and make you feel that you're not mad, you're not alone, and um, that what you're feeling, and particularly in the context of this, has been felt for hundreds and hundreds of years, and therefore it's normal, it's okay. And that's the essence of what the pharmacy is really around. Now, to, to answer the second question, what, what goes on, I, in some ways, I, I think I, I, I ask only three or four questions in my 20 minutes because I really want to let uh, um, my patient, to want of a better word, be heard. That's what they've come to do, to be heard and to be understood. And I usually ask what's on your mind and out it pours. And then I ask, what do you think it's really about? And out it pours. And finally, I ask, going back to your childhood, where do you think this all began? And I don't think I'm doing anything really more complicated than that. Hmm. Listening is, is, listening is like climbing Mount Everest. It's pretty straightforward. You know, you just put one foot in front of the other, but to do it successfully is extraordinarily difficult it is and and i and i've learned and understood now i've got so much admiration for what you do and and what other of your profession do because it's it's very hard thing to do and i felt i had to uh hold their gaze and be totally present for that 20 minutes if they had um you know given me the privilege of of listening to uh, the, the most intimate um, thoughts and problems. And it's, an, it's an awful privilege, isn't it? Sorry? It's like an awful privilege. You know, it's this paradoxical. So, no, well, this is, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this in a minute because, uh, you know, and then all, all I was really giving them in, in return were the, the answering words uh, of, of another person that might give them a, a sense of complicity, give them a sense of catharsis that they could move on in some way. But I have been burdened by it. Mm. So the, the awful privilege is very well put. Good words. It, uh, whenever you outlined, um, William, you know, the sort of genesis of it, um, and I, I've never worked in, in anything remotely like the cut and thrust of, you know, publishing or, or publications or promotion, but I can imagine... It's sort of like, right, let's do it. It's all very gung-ho and it happens. But when you outline to me there, you know, and then, you know, and then I'm leaving on Sunday night from my family and I'm going to be, you know, in a rainy library in Toxtus and then in a hotel around the corner. And there's just almost zero triage of what is going to walk through the door to speak to you. And it's possible that people don't actually even know when they go to see you what they're going to say. This is... But my, my thoughts sort of went out to you there, William, because I imagined, wow, and it's it's not for me to ask necessarily, but there probably were some, as an empath, as clearly empathic as you are, there were probably some dark 
nights, you know, in the hotel going, I didn't, what the fuck was that? You know, like it's just to sort of almost have this, the gateway of the abyss opened and see how it's like becoming, going from being, it's like basically moving through the psychopathological platform 18 and three quarters and saying, this is everywhere. This is in every socioeconomic class. You know, it just has different clothes on and it's everywhere. And there's this, this overwhelming solidarity for your fellow human, but also just, uh, what's the word, sonder? I don't know what country it's from, but that sense of becoming more aware that other people are not the two-dimensional avatars that your brain sort of makes them as they walk through the street, just realizing that they have as rich, full, complicated and meaningful a a life as you do. And it's just like the thinnest of veils that you've broken through, but it must have been an awful lot to be hit with that all, you know, at once, just with not, with no, obviously a clear sensibility for it and a capacity to help, but with no formal training in that or how to sort of discharge these things, that took me a long time to figure out how to do and to be on your own. I can imagine that must have been incredibly burdensome at the time. It was, it really was. And uh, I became very depressed. And, um, but I've, uh, and actually COVID rescued me uh, because I could no longer do it. And, uh, although uh, I, I, I did a few sort of zooms to talk about what I had been doing to carers, um, to doctors, all sorts of things, um, to be able not not to um, have to be present with people doing this, I realised was a blessed relief. And since um, lockdown, I've accepted invitations a couple of times uh, to go to festivals and to listen to people's problems. And I've realized that I really can't um, offer that service anymore. It's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's too much to take on board. And um, uh, I'm maybe, maybe at a later date, I'll, I'll get the energy to do it again. And uh, maybe under supervision, um, I'll be able to. But um, I, I, I do feel pretty depleted by it, and um, uh, I, and uh, I think the awful privilege is a beautiful expression that explains what I've been going through very well. Mm, well, I'm, I'm. I hope that you have some solace from the poems, and this is part of the reason I wanted to contact you because I, I, I it's hard to describe. But when I picked up your book, I thought. It has a jaunty red color to it, but a, a little a little line. For, I don't know what the movie's called, William, but this came to me, and that's what I sort of started us by saying that it had this antecedent quality. And I think the people who who put their names on the blackboard at the original festival also felt that there's a movie, a country and western movie, and this guy's playing guitar, and he's a sort of broken, you know, artist. And he plays this really basic chord, you know, G, C, D. It could be a 12-bar blues. It's those sort of iterative, revelatory axes of music. And he says to his girlfriend at the time, who wrote that? And she's like, I don't know, Dylan, Cash? And he's like, no, I just wrote it just now. <laughs> the good ones always, the good ones you always think were written before, you know. So yeah. there's something so potent. And when people... uh chance upon something and there's really no other way you almost always have to stumble into these progressions 
like Parsifal, you know, like the holy fool, <laughs> you stumble into these things, it almost always takes a takes its toll. And then there's a sort of personal rupture and repair. So I hope that you can find solace in the poems that I hope that you're continuing to. This is one area where I think that the therapist is allowed to self-medicate and not be reported to any regulatory body. It's quite fine if you just keep <laughs> self-medicating. Yeah. But the double-edged sword of social media is something which I've struggled with. I think in many ways social media is a cancer and the shape of the average smartphone is not far off a packet of cigarettes in the inside jacket pocket of a lot of people. You know, it has a certain Oh, that's totemic. a very image, yeah. It's, it's very yeah. totemic. I, I know I think along those terms, so I don't want the cigarette. I don't, I'm like, I don't want these cigarette packs on the table even. Um, oh, that's fantastic. I love that. Can I... Steal away. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Steal away. I'm Irish, so I'll still, I've been stealing the milk out of your tea, so I've been prescribing things left, right, and center, which yes. came out of your mouth. But... Um, the, the no, but I think it, that's such that's so good because it, it expresses the compulsion and the and the, as an ex-smoker as well, you know, when you've run out, the nomophobia I think is what they, you know, when you can't find your phone or it's got, you know, all that kind of lost lost its battery. It's fascinating. It's 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 a double-edged sword because in 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 both of our worlds in a way because psychedelics, the experience of the numinous and psychedelics is um, is so. I don't know how to put it. So axiomatic, so couldn't be any, there's no words. It's implicit and in much the same way as poetry is. It's totally implicit and the words do violence to the experience and it, it tracks very poorly on social media. So I will have the experience of seeing a psychedelic. I don't really promote on social media because I just can't really reconcile that with myself. But I also fully appreciate how, how, intimate and important these experiences can be and there has certainly a lot of people who have probably heard poems that you have said at scale and this is maybe a way that you can take the poetry pharmacy forward William just a suggestion while it's protecting your own psyche from this tsunami of suffering is that there are people listening and bringing themselves back from the edge through memes and YouTube channels and podcasts and all of the all of that so it's just this incredibly paradoxical way that we can save ourselves and just perennially damage ourselves and i just don't really know how psychedelics and their sort of mainstreaming and promulgation tessellate well i've very rarely seen it done well in the world of social media i think it does violent it just seems so anathema to the whole thing and i'm sure at times you know as, as much as it's great to take poetry out of poetry corner when i was reading your book i wanted to read it not I didn't look up any of the poems online. I, I physically read them in the book, and it's beside me here, because I just I just don't know how to, how we move forward without, you know, sawing off the branch that we're currently sat on when it comes to share. How do we disseminate the secular literature? I suppose is my is my unanswered question. Hmm. Well, I think I I, I don't phones aren't going to go away, um, and so. Actually, that poetry reads very well on a phone in the, in, on social media because of its concision, um, mm. you know, all of that. And um, but maybe through s- social media, you can drive people back to the book. Uh, yeah, and, perhaps. Yeah. Yes, and you know what? What I, um, I, I what my mission in life is, it, it, in a way, to provide the 
the uh, the canon of secular liturgy. You know, so I, I make the forward book of poetry every year and have done for thirty one years, and out of that I've chosen three poems of the decade, and uh, I've got two volumes of the poetry pharmacy, but I've written a third, which will come out in September, which mm. it all will, you know, if you brought the three together, will give you 150, 165 poems and conditions, uh, balms, as you might say. So mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm hoping that that will be rather like a sort of Victorian herbalist will sit on people's <laughs> headsides um, yeah. or in their loo or whatever, yeah. that, you know, to, to, to look for. And I've done a big, beautiful, uh, illustrated children's book um, called Everyone Sang, A Poem for Every Feeling, and illustrated by Emily Sutton, who's the most gifted illustrator of all, I feel. Uh, and I've done that in the structure of sort of the pharmacy, five sections, uh, poems to um, calm and connect you, poems to inspire you and so forth, poems to make you smile, for adults to read with with children, to, to, to draw out and bring out... Um, how they're feeling, and and to, to make the children connect poetry with with um, with a sense of, of 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 turning to poetry to help them in times of need. I'm particularly struck at the moment by this because I think one of the unspoken impacts of COVID is 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 a kind of time bomb. So um, any child let's say under the age of seven or eight, won't really, or even older, won't really remember what life was like pre-COVID, pre-lockdown. And during that period, they watched their uh, guardians, parents, uh, carers become completely unmoored with anxiety. And the rock or the certainty or the authority that those people represented for those children was kind of... um, knocked aside. And uh, children of that age don't have the vocabulary to express the impact of that. Mm. And that's going to be a therapeutic time bomb. And, Absolutely. And everyone sang was designed in a way, as I was putting it together, for those adults to kind of reestablish um, that connection and to try and help the children talk about how they feel. The that's I've never fully appreciated the yeah this is it's almost like too much to look at because I think the therapeutic community those who work in mental health are are sort of in a denial about how impactful uh, the digitalization and, and the and the sort of severance from the village that that is having on on the on this sort of crop of people who are coming through I almost think that it is too much to bear at the minute to to think that this is. It's like in surfing; they call it like a double hold down. You know, you get held down by one wave, but you don't actually resurface by the time the second one comes. You know, so it it's almost feels like there's another one coming that's sort of dormant um, in the minds of the young people. Who, yes, it wouldn't have been expressed. I almost sometimes find that, you know the dad at the kitchen table who's not sure if he's going to get laid off next month and is very terse after the zoom call and doesn't know if he's got covid and whatever because we didn't know as adults what was actually happening it was sort of amorphous both physiologically and psychologically and societally there wasn't any opportunity to turn around and almost 
hotspot the articulation and unconscious understanding for the child to say, oh, you know, daddy's nervous about this or mommy feels sad because such and such happened because we as adults didn't know, but the children were definitely, um, were definitely picking, picking up on that. So. Yes. And, and in funny enough, I, I, I'm of the age where I was brought up by parents who were children in the war. And, uh, in hindsight, um, I look at them now and I can see how damaged they were by that. Um, and th- there is that analogy. Oh, it's it's only, I mean, and again, I, I just, as you say that, I, I sort of, not anywhere near to the same extent, of course, but, you know, Keeping Going by Seamus Heaney has become an incredibly important poem to me, only in adulthood, you know, when, you know, you, you think back, like a lot of my generation, I'm Northern Irish, it's really only in, into adulthood when we have children and it's it's that comparison to say, oh, it's not normal. You know, it's, it's, it can be, it's, it can be, that's a sort of intergenerational time bomb where people only realize how, de- how deficient certain things were, how unsafe certain things were in their family or their society or whatever, because children are incredibly adaptive. It's only when we become adults, we sort of have some comparison, you know, it's not a poem, but it's a line from a, from a James song that I quote quite often for clients. And it's, if I hadn't seen such riches, I could live with being poor. And so it's really only when we get into adulthood and, and our children have a different set of circumstances, which we retro- retrofit our awareness of that. So that I think is going to precipitate a lot of sadness, maybe not in the children who are coming through. And oh, the kids are from the COVID kids seem fine. It might be when they get to adulthood and they're thinking about the seventh birthday party that they were not able to have at their own child's seventh birthday party and be very sad and not know why. So I feel there'll be poetry you know need to be placed for yeah I've, I've never really considered that William but we really need to focus to, to just pay attention to this cohort and, and not make any assumptions about what and how and when this pandemic will have impacted them but I think it's reasonable to assume that it certainly did <laughs> you know it's not it's well it's, also because you know I, I my children are um in their um early 20s and you know, one of them in particular missed all his rites of passage, leaving school, um, going on a gap year, uh, going to university when it wasn't online. And, you know, that, that's a, it's a really important stage in a child's life, um, uh, that, that beginnings of separation. And uh, I can see in him, um, you know, just a sense of, I've I've just missed out on on my journey, and 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 if I go into the workplace now without that, um, who will I be? Yes, yes. Such a formative time, such a formative time to make make friends. I was work I was working at Cambridge University during the pandemic, and there was just I I felt personally. This is just me speaking personally. There wasn't enough credence in certain quarters between you know and everything looks like a nail to a hammer but i'm like okay if i was you know 25 and now i'm working out in the world and i got covid and i didn't die but i was at least able to sort of be with other people who 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 were of my cohort and i got to meet them and we made friends you know it's such a such a bountiful time to make friends it's very difficult to make those fast friends later in life i don't really know why but oh well because sorry i'm interrupting but the, 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 the 
it's that shared experience with somebody of not knowing what's coming next and and uh, uh, having the time and it really is a, you know three years and so forth having having the time with the, each other once you're in the working world you, you've only got evenings and weekends you can't share adventures in the same way with people that in the way in which you bond with people for life mm, the, the the removal the sort of ever-present nature of chronos when you get out into the world is like you know it really it really seems to if friendship was a darkened room you know the the the, the pressure of time is like a led light it doesn't need to be very bright to completely ruin you know, <laughs> to ruin the atmosphere of a dark room it, it it just and i felt like that's possibly what has been robbed of the people is the sort of undergirding of time. That time, you can't really get it back again. So what we might see, William, I'm just speculating here, is a sort of generational recapitulation of that time. It's like, well, we had a failure to launch. It wasn't our fault. It's not like we were, you know, in cells in our mother's basement of our own accord. We just weren't allowed to go outside. And um, i just very briefly tell a story about when I was last in Belfast, it was during the pandemic. It was the tail end of the pandemic. And there was all these restrictions. And then I just saw a group of teenagers or, you know, uni students going into a party. And clearly there was no social distancing. They were, you know, French kissing on the doorstep. And I had this very bizarre experience of part of me being, you know, the puritanical, oh, they shouldn't be doing that. And then another part, William, was just like, fill your boots, go for your life. Like this is, this is an unbroken thread, which is, is, is not everything, but it's so important. So I, I, I'm just curious and nervous as a therapist to see how it's going to you know how it's going to how it's going to re-enter your poetry pharmacy and how it's going to re-enter <laughs> my therapy suite but it's coming i just don't know in what guise and, and what what manner but it's certainly if it's not already starting to, to trickle through um yes and the and the the other community that uh i think we've not thought properly about are, and these are adults rather than young people, are the people who worked on the front line of COVID. I got an incredibly moving email from a doctor uh, towards the end of COVID who said, I've just gone back to my practice having been on, you know, in COVID emergency in a hospital. And 74 people from my patient list have gone, have died. And, you know, how, how, how do I cope with that? You know, while you were all baking bread and banging saucepans on a Thursday, we were in First World War conditions. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I know how much people, for instance, in the armed forces uh, from Vietnam onwards uh, felt that the trauma that they went through uh, in Iran, Iraq, uh, sorry, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan and so forth, um, was very hard for everyone else to understand because, uh, and what's more, people don't value what we did uh, in, in, in that way. So I, I think that the uh, the frontline um, public services community in hospitals in particular, but, you know, ambulances and, and so forth, that, that those people are marked forever by what they've been through. And yet they're expected to sort of uh, just go back to normal. And they won't, mm-hmm. they can't. No, they won't. And the the other ele- the an additional element to the the just the the generic uh, gr- the attritional grind of you know 
trench warfare ostensibly you know it's it's this will be over by it's sort of like the world war one mentality we all you know keep calm carry on this will be over by christmas it's like no it won't it certainly yeah. wasn't and yes. then that additional um that additional wound of like a moral injury making triage decisions about who should die and who yes. shouldn't and i i think that that functions it's haunt you forever it's haunt you forever and it's they carry their ghosts with them and there is within house I, I'm just, as you're talking about that, I'm imagining a poetry pharmacy, not in every national library, but in every national health service hospital. Please don't, don't do it, William, yourself, and then stay in you know, B&Bs every night but because you won't, you won't resurface. But, you know, a team of people who, who had the same apothecary of poems at their disposal were able to listen and could sit and, you know, plonk themselves in an NHS staff room. And I would be quietly confident that the the veritable blackboard outside would be absolutely chock-a-block. And um, yeah, in a way, in much the same way as regardless what one thinks about warfare, there's a sort of civic responsibility to returning soldiers. I think there's a civic responsibility to, re- to the returning frontline staff. You know, it's it's... Yeah, it's the yeah, it's the difference between, you know, sourdough and, <laughs> and and having to choose between life or death between two old women. You know, that's that's yeah. no comparison. So I right. if if you had I'm just curious if because we I do get a lot of listeners who obviously are in these these fields. What have you found for the healers, you know, the carers? What types of poems do you find really seem to land with people who are in a position where they are taking on this awful privilege what what have you found to resonate for yourself or for the others that i'm sure you've seen just in the within the context of the poetry pharmacy well um in it, 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 i suppose um one poem in particular um just sort of pops up in my head when you just said that um uh, and that's a poem by Derek Mann, um, who uh, is fr- from your home country, and it's a poem called Everything is Going to Be All Right. And um, I think that's the one I've, I've used the most. I mean, to be honest, I prescribe having talked to people and got a sense of what's really going on inside them, um, as much as I can tell anyway, and tried to find them um, a poem about courage or loneliness or whatever but this poem uh, I thought would be rather appropriate for what we were going through in that period how should I not be glad to contemplate the clouds clearing beyond the dormer window and a high tide reflected on the ceiling there will be dying there will be dying but there is no need to go into that The poems flow from the hand unbidden, and the hidden source is the watchful heart. The sun rises in spite of everything, and the far cities are beautiful and bright. I lie here in a riot of sunlight, watching the day break and the clouds flying. Everything is going to be all right. Beautiful, thank you. 
very poignant for that time, just the image of someone lying on the groundhog day and sort of the reflection of whatever's, you know, in the street below on the on the roof. It's it's again those those aphorisms, everything is going to be all right. It seems to be, William, that it's so important to read them aloud and read them over time because you could say that to someone every day that ends in a way for a decade and it doesn't land. No. And then it it will. And as much as, and this is just my two cents on it, as much as um, it is really important for people to say, absolutely essential for people to seek suitable medical, professionally trained care, I have been astounded by how many people will say, you know, I was on the way to kill myself in the taxi cab. And as I was getting out, the bloke said, so you know, everything's going to be all right, mate. And they just turned around. And, and then you'll ask them, were you in the care of, you know, people with lots of letters after their name? And it's not one or the other. It's not either or it's both and. But what I call the, the gorilla therapists, the hairdresser, the, the publican, yourself, you know, the, the taxi driver, the, the the bouncer, these people are out there holding the interstitial fabric together, and poets certainly have their you know place at the dice, I suppose, um, because that's what got us through. It wasn't, it wasn't certainly wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't Boris Johnson. Do you know what I mean? It was. No, no, no. I'm interested by that because the government have said that they can't possibly. Um, ramp up people with letters after their name to cope with the mental health crisis that we're in. And, um, you know, for a decade or more, we won't be able to train up enough people, and I doubt we ever will. But my publishers, Penguin, have very kindly offered um, to print posters of my prescriptions and poems. And we're about to embark on that and um, put them in wards and walls of uh, about eight hospitals in um, the greater London area as an experiment to see um, see its impact. And, um, and they've been joined in by the publishers of my children's illustrated book with these beautiful illustrations who said they'll do some for children's wards. And I'm, I'm hopeful that that's the beginning of something. I, I've managed to get... Um, uh, copies of these books into prison libraries. Um, one of the most moving moments in a prison is when prison visitors arrive and prisoners are allowed to be with their children. And um, But you can imagine it's a very complicated business being with your children when you're in prison uh, for that, that brief interlude. And again, uh, I've got the, the big children's book in so that prisoners can sit and, and read with their children as a way of connecting. Um, so I would really like to see um, in schools, in prisons, in hospitals, uh, poetry seen as a really important uh, source of therapy and a way of processing, um, um, you know, the complexities of what people are going through uh, for, for, for health uh, and for mental health. That's that's the moment the person needs to see the poem that says everything's going to be all right when their child yeah. is on the leukemia ward, not not when yeah. they're in a rush, you know, in the in Tesco's and this. Uh, oh, look at that card! 
Can yes. I make a suggestion? There's two names that come to my mind. This is just me sort of extemporaneously imagining who, the sorts of people that would be interested. The first that comes to mind, William, I would I would love to hear you chat to or have some sort of interface with is Ian McGilchrist. So he's a psychiatrist, but of I think it's fair fair to call him a scholar, and he has such an an amazing sensibility for um for the numinous and just for he's just for all sorts of things. Like he he re, he replaces psychiatry within its proper context, which is you know as a spearhead amongst many other ways that people can heal. And he's spoken quite beautifully about poetry. And it's not by any means thinking that it's like, oh, there's, you know, there's the real prescription and then there's all of these other, you know, sort of pithy, you know, facetious pretend ones. It's, I, I think that there is a, a, a sensibility amongst mental health professionals or people who have pre- prescription pads in their hands that at times they feel like they're rocking up to the earthquake of someone's psyche with a dustpan and brush. <laughs> there's just nothing that you can give them. So the the combination of those two things, having I, I would be fascinated to, to to hear you and see you speak with people like Ian McGilchrist because I, he would have a sensibility for what you're doing, and I would imagine after your this awful privilege, the the sort of burden burdensome of that, you start to fully appreciate how how essential you know those types of like really robust scaffolded mental health care systems are for people. But I just think that's the the yin and the yang. People need both. We are not, it is not okay for people to just, who are suffering, to receive medication for their depression per se, but not their sorrow. Those two things are part of the I'm same. not their soul. You're you not know, their soul, yeah. Um, soul you know, I, I, we have an epidemic of prescription uh, of antidepressants in, in this country, and um, that's only dampening things. It's not resolving things. It's not providing catharsis. It's not providing any sense of complicity uh, of communality at all and um, no I feel very strongly that um, it's not that hard to do to um, uh, it wouldn't be hard for for me to train up my my little approach um, to, to uh, all kinds of far more gifted pr- uh, people to offer uh, uh, both um, um, a, 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 a listening ear and uh, and a poem to resonate. And funnily enough, I was sitting next to a man uh, at a meal um, who's in the therapeutic profession, and I was telling him about the pharmacy. He said, I'm so jealous. I said, what do you mean? He said, because people know that contractually they're only coming to see you once, and they're looking for catharsis. And if you get it right, you're providing some kind of catharsis. And my patients are just coming back next Thursday to say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, they become their Thursday three p.m. You know, they become yes. that 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 slot. So that yeah, I think there's something deeply implicit and unfaired about the approach of a of a of a, a poetry pharmacy, or or even and again, I'm not just trying to sort of make parallels where they aren't there, but people will go along to, you know, there's a big movement now, of course, for Westerners to seek healing through ayahuasca, through the Shipibo tradition, and all sorts of you know, plant medicines in, in their cultural container, as Michael Pollan would put it. There isn't the same inferred paternalism between the, sh- the shaman and the um, often. It can. Obviously, there's people that will co-opt that for, for nefarious means, but that's nothing new. But there isn't this inferred uh, paternalism where it's like, I am the person with the clipboard and therefore I am going to, you know, 
make fix you because it infers that you're broken in the first place. And to your point about, um, you know, when people would come to see you, I'm sure a lot of the poems, and again, I'm just speculating, you're not afraid, you might prescribe poems whereby you're thinking the poet very much feels the depression. You know, I've always given people Larkin if they're depressed because people are always very depressed. No, it's because he's going to, they're going to experience that visceral solidarity, feel they're not alone, and then they're going to come out of it. And there's no relationship with a pill in the way that you can't anthropomorphize it. It's not, it's, I think we need to start thinking in the broadest possible context of healing as the biological response to care and whether that's a poem or a psychedelic journey or an Icarus or a prescription or 20 minutes having someone like yourself or a psychiatrist or whomever listen and then truly authentically listen then I think that's that's my little rant but I've I've been fairly underwhelmed with where the prescription model is going and it's clearly not working it's clearly not working so I um it's putting your putting your thumb in the dam is in the dike isn't it <laughs> Yeah, and you've only got so many fingers. Yeah, and um, the thing about putting your thumb in the dike—they never the, the the sort of epilogue to that story is the wee boy himself was back at the hospital saying, you know, I need to see an orthopedic surgeon because I had to put a fucking thumb in the dam for everybody yeah. else. You know, it, yeah. Yeah. it it creates this infinite regress of of suffering, um, and I don't I think our way out of that is to realize that we're all just walking each other home. Yeah. So I'm um, I'm very very appreciative and conscious of your time. I'm. I'm curious to know, because we have talked a little bit about the canon and all these beautiful poems. I should also say for listeners, everything we've mentioned, any of the other wonderful people Williams talked about or poems, etc. I have fairly detailed show notes. So go there and you can, that can be, this can be the opening conversational gambit of your exploration of all of these things we've talked about. But in terms of modern poets, is there anyone um, who, and maybe you don't want to single one particular person, but is there any particular things, poems, poets that have been coming through to you and, and lighting you up in a way that is is new? I, I, it's, an, it's an invidious thing to single anyone out. Sure, sure, because sure. I, I, I give the biggest poetry prize. Um, ah, right, yeah. yeah. And um, in, in that position, uh, I, I'm, I'm, <coughs> I'm very careful not to. Sure. Um, but... Um, Again, I would encourage listeners with, um, to seek out poems for the decade, uh, mm-hmm. poems for the decade, because that's a hundred poets, a hundred poems, and um, that gives you a chance, the reader, to single out whose voice most intrigues you, yes. and then find out more of their work. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. I, we're all different, <laughs> and yeah. um, so what might intrigue me might not intrigue you. Um, yeah. So I think that would be the simplest answer I could give to that. Yeah, the poetry anthology is 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 having its own renaissance in a way because it's a place for people to go to find out. Yeah, maybe that's more even the self medication model. It's <laughs> it's the next step up. It's someone who knows about poems and has that sensibility will prescribe you something. Okay, now it's time for you to take the baton and and internalize it and, and seek out the things which which will enrich you but i it's a wonder it sounds like it's a wonderful time for poetry and um i just wanted to thank you for um writing your book and being so open accessible and being such a lovely orator i think um the 
um, Hampshire Under 11's prize was very well warranted. You've clearly, <laughs> you. you clearly deserve that, and I would very much. I'll try and include it um, on the bio as well. Huh. Um, <laughs> but if people want to find out more about what you're doing, and, and more more specifically, William, not to just sort of peruse, but to be active in this, to if they feel that what we've been talking about, they're they're saying yes, yes, a thousand times yes. What can they? What, what 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 can they do? What would be your, I suppose, prescription for them? What would you like to see people do to 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 really continue to take poetry out of the poetry corner and put it back in the public square? Well, uh, one of the things I I do is I um, uh, I started this thing called National Poetry Day over here, um, which happens in the first Thursday in October, and in a way, it's 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 a an anchor, an opportunity for the reticent, more reticent uh, Anglo-Saxons <laughs> to celebrate without embarrassment uh, poetry in the world. Yeah. And it's also a way of getting the media to focus on poetry. But you can turn to your loved one and say, shall I compare thee? Or you can abseil down a building reciting a poem. <laughs> or, you know, you can... Uh, uh, yeah. And as a result, over these 30 years now, you know, kids in schools read, learn, write a poem, all kinds of wacky things happen. Um, I've always felt that uh, there's a much more open heart in the Celtic tradition mm. to poetry. Um, it, and, you know, if I was in Dublin and I belted out a poem, someone would buy me a pint. And if I was in London and I belted out a poem, who knows what would happen? Um, Move a sports crowd in here, mate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, I, I think um, uh, one of the most extraordinary things, actually, I discovered in poetry, and this is something I'd really encourage people to do. So, this is empowering and enabling, and you can do in any community. My next door neighbour in London started a thing called "Pick Up a Poem" or "Bring a Poem," and uh, she is now in her seventies. And she said, oh, you like poetry? Come along to one of my evenings. Just bring, just bring a poem. Just bring a poem, she said. And her only rule is, you can't have written it yourself. Just bring a poem that means something to you. And she hosted an evening where she offered, I think also, um, I think she put a bit of money in and, and, and bought some wine, but she could also say, you know, bring a bottle. And the most extraordinary event. There were about 30 people, maybe 35 people in her kitchen, rammed in, and they were aged between 15 and 80. And all those people did was take it in turns to read the poem out loud that really meant something to them. And I started to go to these evenings, and, you know, I've read more poetry than most, and there's always something I'd never heard before, a gem. And there's something about the communing of every gener of many generations together who want to be part of this. And it seems so blessedly simple. It was like a, a kind of version of poetry version of book club, um, that uh, it was a lovely way of bringing a community together of like-minded souls, but also within the, you know, a kind of physical community because people don't travel far. They're just kind of walking down the, the street or two. And, a lovely way of spending an evening sharing, listening to poetry, and in in between, chatting to your neighbours. You're, she's 
she's a genius. This is this is the next story that you can tell. I think William about that lady who who sort of cracked the source code of how to get poetry out to the masses with a blackboard and a and a yurt, and then you stuck yeah. in the middle with a full bladder. Yeah. She's recapitulated the village there. It reminds me of that story. I think it's like an old Portuguese story that I'm fond of telling. Is Supa de Pedra? You know the stone soup. The wee man comes into the square, makes a big fuss. Everyone in this little town is all behind their, you know, shutters and all very mean spirited. And he makes a big noise and he produces a magic stone from his satchel and says, "There's a magic stone, everyone." You know, I'm going to make the best soup and everyone's starving and malnourished. Throws the water in, gives it a stir and he just takes his little wooden spoon out of the spat, out of the satchel, makes a big fuss of going, it's perfect, just just needs a little bit of rabbit. <laughs> Some old bloke walks out and then, you know, it needs a few carrots and by the end, they're all there bickering in the town square eating this peasant stew. They get to the bottom, they all want to chase for the stone it's not there and nor is the man who put it there. And, and that's the way I finish pretty much every talk I do on psychedelics because I'll say psychedelics are not magic, but the village is. Yeah. And so I suspect that we have both of our different P words, you know, our problem child as Albert Hoffman might've put it, that she's, she's done two amazing things. So please don't give her a pat on the back. That's a weird thing to do to an elderly lady, but she circumnavigated the narcissistic personality corner, which can often come out of, um, you know, poetry corner and we all want it to stay there by making it not your own poem yeah, and then have a wee bit of inebriation for the, you know, the reticent Anglo-Saxons and making sure that people are having the crack with people of every age, because that is another thing that I see with the young people. The algorithms do not want you to be friends and enjoy the fun of people who are far older than you. They will choose your friend group. So we've got to find ways to be, to recapitulate the village in the most parochial sense and what a beautiful harmony of the transcendental through poems and the parochial through you know the village soup so i think she's on to something william i think you've got to <laughs> could take that ball and run with it yes um but that sounds absolutely wonderful william i would if you would be open to it i i would very much like to, to meet and talk in, in person and shake your hand and say thank you very much I'd I should be in Europe. I should be in Europe in next next year in the summer. Yeah, and I'd very much like to um, hear you say. We'll, we'll go to an Irish bar, and I'll say it's okay. He's with me. He's allowed to say a poem. <laughs> Make sure you don't get glassed. <laughs> that would be delightful. That would be delightful. Yeah, it's, it's been a real pleasure, and I will also take this space on the podcast to speak some poems because I've been very embarrassed about enjoying poetry. You know, if you're good at sports, you're not, you know, it's a sort of ridiculous things. You're not supposed to like poetry, but I have benefited from it enormously myself. So I feel it's an incumbent upon me, like it sounds like it was to you, to share that, to not hold on to it for yourself. And I think the audio format is a wonderful way where people can be listening on the tube to this. Yes. Well, please be, be, feel free to share from the pharmacy. There are, there are, there are is that uh, okay? Yeah. Yes. There, there, there are two books out there, an orange and a blue. Yeah. And and hopefully a, a a third in September to follow. So, well, would um, it be okay if I take? I might finish the episode with. I'll have a peruse and, and and have some fun choosing one, and then even read. I love your little spiels as well. About spiels is, is a cheap word. Your your explanation of why you have the rationale behind the de, the, the prescription, which is beautiful. So, with your permission, I'd like to read a few on the yes. podcast at various yes. times. Feel okay. free. I think that it, it's worth doing that because I think. It contextualizes. It was my attempt to contextualize the poem in people's yeah. lives, and uh, it helps make more sense of it. And I, 
I, if I could be so bold, I have, I have a couple of poems that I have prescribed and I, I want them to be out there for people. There's, I'll tell you what they are right now. Um, and I think I mentioned them to you, uh, midterm break by CMS yes. for people that have lost children. Yeah. It is as important to them as the in, in, you know, incredibly important stabilizing medications, which the mothers often need. But when they're ready, I'm like, this is not, this is soul medicine. There's a few others, a few Larkin poems and things. And it would be useful for me to clarify to my own self because it's so intuitive, isn't it? But then whenever I, I almost want to, to understand why I've been giving, I was being doing this, it's so bananas off my own back. And then I'm like, okay, this, this guy has, this guy has really articulated what I haven't been able to do for, for, for almost a decade. So thank you. My great pleasure. Yeah, well, I uh, thank you so much for your time, William, and yeah, this to, to be continued. Good. Very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And as we alluded to in the conversation, hopefully it's to be continued at some stage in the future in person. Just on other news, um, there has been an announcement since I recorded the podcast with William by the TGA, which is the Therapeutic Goods Administration here in Australia, that from the 1st of July this year, medicines containing the psychedelic substances psilocybin and MDMA can be prescribed by specifically authorised psychiatrists for the treatment of certain mental health conditions. And this is really huge news on something which we will be delving much deeper into with future guests. And I will also be moderating a panel on the 2nd of March for the Mental Health Professionals Network here in Australia with uh, several people, key stakeholders in the field. And yeah, details will are to be confirmed because we're just doing this off the back of the, the recent TGA announcement. But yeah, as and when I get the information more specifically about where it is and other things, I will certainly share that with you. But yeah, things are going to start moving very quickly, um, even quicker than they already have been, which is great. But I think, as always, we all have a bit of caution and we don't want to be naive about how things will move forward. But for those of you listening, there are certainly shifts in terms of policy and also the way in which these substances are going to mainstream and the timeline is even more truncated in many ways than than we thought it would be so that's all for the good but there's obviously as always reservations about how how well and how comprehensively we all ensure that these substances re-enter Western society in a way which is beneficial to the most number of people with the least amount of harm. So basically watch this space. So just to the point that myself and William had made about how, you know, this is one type of prescription, which is obviously foundationally important for psychiatrists to prescribe medication to people who are suffering. Um, There's also the consideration that psychedelics alone and just being treated as another pill is certainly not going to do it. So, as myself and William had discussed, here is one poem from his poetry pharmacy, which I prescribe quite regularly. And I want to read his rationale 
behind this prescription and then I'll actually read the poem. And then we'll hopefully do this again a few more times because I really do believe that it's not either or, it's both and. I am delighted to see that psychiatrists are now going to be in a position where they will be able to prescribe these medications. And just just for the time being, it is really only uh, through the TGA's announcement that it will be for PTSD, for the use of MDMA, and treatment-resistant depression for psilocybin. But of course, things will broaden and the, the potential use use cases will, will certainly increase. But I don't think that that's all there is. And I really feel that it is important that we don't just become myopic and think that it is all about a doctor prescribing some medication because healing and life happens well beyond the confines of a prescription pad. So with that being said, here is the prescription from some poetry from William. So this is within the book for the conditioned self-recrimination. And he also writes that it's suitable for alienation, loneliness, regret and self-loathing. So this is William speaking now. There's something about nature in poetry that always seems to speak to people. The natural world brings with it an extraordinary sense of vigour and renewal, one which in turn provides the perfect springboard for rethinking our own problems and difficulties. There's no worry so great that it can't be made small by the sweep of wild geese across an endless sky. The scale of such images helps us to escape from the constrained and often urban emotional patterns in which we can so easily become stuck. They prompt us to say to ourselves, I can, I can overcome. In its 17 lines, Mary Oliver's Wild Geese communicates a wonderful and quietly radical idea that we might treat the soft animals of our bodies with kindness. Allow yourself to love what you love, not only whom you'll notice, but what. Feeling needn't always be held in check by rationality, especially when so many of our desires and compulsions relate to the animal in us. Rather than fight it, we should celebrate and nurture our animal self. So much stupider than us in some ways, and yet, in other ways, so much wiser. The attempt to civilize ourselves is often our greatest source of pain. Imagine a life in which we did not have to repent an undignified desire or a so-called sinful, bestial or savage thought. Oliver tells us that there is no need for the self-flagellation that seems part and parcel of being a person, of being good. There is a small, wide-eyed animal within each of us that doesn't understand why we keep kicking it. All we need to do is overcome, to overcome is to treat ourselves like a loyal pet, with love, forgiveness, and understanding. Wild Geese by Mary Oliver You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body Love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. 
Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Until next time, Nolita Mary.